Good morning. Uh, Hannah, can you, um, can I borrow you a sec? Put your cup of tea down. Hope it's not lukewarm. <laughs> can you draw me a £10 note on the flip chart? It's not a test, it's an illustration. So, without trying to be too distracted by Hannah drawing her £10, you're not allowed to look at one. No peeking. Uh, we're starting a, a new three-part series this morning called Being Human. When uh, Ryan Termoyshazen was with us last weekend on the Strengths Day, he started off by asking, or saying there were two, the two biggest questions we can ask are, who are you? and what is your purpose? Who are you and what is your purpose? And it's that which I want us to think about. How are you doing, Hannah? You think about done? Brilliant. Round of applause for Hannah. Okay, we'll come back to that later. Who are you and what is your purpose? Galatians 6 verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Now we're gonna spend three weeks thinking about what human beings are. Uh, uh, I'm doing this at both sites, so I'm nipping down from Alder Road when I've spoken there to come and, and do this. Actually throughout July, uh, it's traveling preachers every week. I'm preaching three times, Ian's preaching twice, Ian's final couple of preachers, and we're both preaching at both sites. Once we get to August, uh, non-traveling preachers are, are back in town, but that's how it's going to be for the next five weeks. Now, why, why are we doing this series? A number of reasons. One reason is that we don't want to be deceived. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. We, don't, we shouldn't want to think of ourselves as we're not, have a wrong view of ourselves. We don't want to be deceived. And what it is to be human being, what it is to be a human, is, is increasingly questioned because of the developments in technology, the technology we're inventing uh, is changing how we understand ourselves, what it is to be a human being. And that has impacts for our health. And my hope is that by looking at this subject, what it is to be a human being, that it would be good for our health, it would be good for our emotional and spiritual health, also good for our physical health. And that's true whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hopefully thinking about these things will lead you into some more health. If you are a follower of Jesus, hopefully it will lead you into health as well. And hopefully it will lead you into discipleship because we don't want to just be vague believers in God. We want to be those who are disciples, those who are like Jesus, who do what he says, who reflect him and honor him. So that's the purpose of this series. So it'd be good to pray, pray that God helps us. Uh, we're going pretty deep and pretty wide. It's a huge subject this is the kind of subject we could spend, that should work really well, a whole series of Saturday morning seminars. I know if I did that, nobody would come. And so I'm trying to squeeze it into 35 minutes on a Sunday. It's a bit of a challenge. Uh, up at Alder Road this morning, I felt like I was drowning. Uh, Felicity is with me, said I was amazing. Hopefully, it will fall somewhere between those two points with you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning. I pray that you would help me as we try and unpack these things. I pray, Lord, you would help us to understand more of what it is to be human beings, what that really means, challenges presented to us by the world that we live in and the truth that's revealed to us in your word. 
And this might help us in the mission that you've called us to and would lead us towards health and discipleship. In your name I ask it. Amen. This morning's theme is about bodies, being a body. What is a human being? One thing that we are, one thing that you are, is unique. You've never met anyone else quite like you in your life. There is no one else quite like you. And you might think that's a great pity, or you might think that's a relief, depending on how you feel about yourself. But there's no one else in the world who is quite like you. You're unique. At the same time, there's also surprising degree of uniformity amongst us that actually a lot of the way that people think and the things that we do are not because we have independently autonomously come up with those thoughts and ideas but we think the way we do and act the way we do because that's how we've been conditioned by our culture it's why people living today have different assumptions about life from those who lived 500 years ago completely different worlds when if you could go in a time machine to pull 500 years ago the way people thought about things many important things of life would have been very different not because people have changed, but because culture changes and changes the way that people think about ourselves. So we're unique, but we're uniform. We know that we're a mix of the psychological, the emotional, the material, the spiritual. We know that human beings are infuriating. There's nothing more frustrating, annoying, irritating than other people. And we also know that human beings are beautiful. It's the place where you find your greatest joy. Love, satisfaction, community is with other people. We know that we're complicated. So what are we? And what might we be? Well, technology actually changes the questions that we ask and the answers that we give. We live in a world in which computers are everywhere. This room, even with a few of us here, there are probably hundreds of microchips in this room. All the phones, watches, computers, other electronic gadgets are in here. The iPad I'm using to speak from. We're surrounded by technology. Everything's microchipped. Everything's barcoded. Computers are increasingly ubiquitous. Faster and faster and smarter and smarter. And the phone in our pockets is probably the thing which most powerfully symbolizes and represents this. The, the phone in our pockets gives us access to the world. And it makes possible things which would have been unimaginable to us just yesterday. Just yesterday, we wouldn't have imagined that we'd all be carrying around in our pockets a device which means that we can listen to practically any piece of music ever composed in the history of the world. We would never have imagined that we'd carry little devices in our pockets which would enable us to get onto Google Earth and see anybody's house anywhere in the world. We'd have never imagined that for free, essentially, we could get maps with voice directions to anywhere in the world. We would have never imagined that we could have stored hundreds and hundreds of contact details and a thing in our hands. These things were unimaginable just yesterday, and now we just take them for granted. And because the technology has changed, it changes how we think about ourselves. We're increasingly and constantly connected. And over these three weeks, we really wanted to think about the impact upon that technology has upon us and how we need to deal with that and handle it. The question starts to come of where does the human being end and where does the machine begin? And that's the case, especially with phones, because for so many people, so many people walk around permanently like this. So many people are anxious. Those of you who've got phones in your hands right now, put them away. They're distracting. Shouldn't have them. Use pen and paper. Use a notebook. I'll explain why in a couple of weeks. I'm preaching from not writing. You learn much more by writing than you do by typing. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Anyway, it's because we're bodies, not machines. 
But where does, the, where, does, where does the human end and where does the machine begin? And it's how it is. I was at the station a couple of weeks back catching a train and thinking about this series and just noticed that everybody else at the station, everybody was like this. Everybody was, where does the human end? Where does the machine begin? And when do machines then take... I've got my phone powered off, by the way, <laughs> so, it, so it can't ping. Uh, where, where, do, uh, where do machines... When do the machines take over? And driverless technology is going to happen. It will probably happen first in the US. It will probably happen first in trucks in the US because in the US, truck drivers drive a quarter of a million miles a year, thousands and thousands of trucks transporting stuff across that huge continent of a country, and driverless technology will just work there so well. They get trucks and convoys. They won't need humans to drive them. It will be more reliable and safer and more efficient. That will happen probably in the next 10 years. Actually, at the moment, the biggest single occupation of employment in the States is being a truck driver. There's going to be tens of thousands of people who have to find new jobs because the machines will take over what humans have previously done. And all this leads to talk of what scientists, technologists describe as the singularity. The singularity being the point at which machine intelligence overtakes human intelligence. For some of us, we might think, well, the machines got there a long time ago. But many people are working very hard to make this happen. A lot of resources going in to reach this point where machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, surpasses human intelligence. There are other people who are very scared by it. And this isn't just science fiction. They're very serious people who are taking this very seriously. Elon Musk, the great entrepreneur, says that artificial intelligence is our greatest existential threat. If the machines get more intelligent than us, why would they need us? Stephen Hawking said that if we reach a singularity, it will be the biggest event in human history. Bill Gates simply says, why are some people not concerned? Now, I don't want to scare you this morning, but serious people are taking these things very seriously. Some are suggesting, Stephen Hawking himself suggested this, that we might be able to take the human mind and download that to the internet that we could be released from our bodies in that sense to become immortal by taking our consciousness and loading it up on the net. Now, when you buy a new microwave oven and you can't work out how to program it to heat your beans for 30 seconds, you might think that the singularity is a long way off. But what should we think about these things? What should we think about humans and technology? What, how should we think about this as Christians? What should we think about us? What are we human beings? Who are you? What is your purpose? Now, a contemporary view, a common view, a typical view of what human beings goes something like this, that human beings are just the result of millions of years of, of evolution, that we are essentially gunk. Yeah, wonderful gunk, but essentially just gunk, which has evolved into the creatures that we now are. And increasingly, we think of that gunk as mechanical gunk. That's happened since we started to invent mechanical stuff. Clockwork was invented and people started talking about people working like clockwork. Steam engines were invented and we started talking about humans working up ahead of steam. The electronic revolution happened and we start talking about genetic engineering and the building blocks of life and about how we're hardwired for certain things. We start increasingly to think about our bodies as hardware and our minds, our consciousnesses 
as software. Now, what I want to say, my argument, my standpoints in this series is to say that viewpoint is wrong. It's fundamentally wrong, and it's also harmful. It's harmful because it's wrong. If someone thinks they're something they're not, they deceive themselves. If you think you're mechanical guns, you're deceived. I'd argue that from what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the grounds. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. The story that the Bible tells about who we are is this, that we were, yes, made from the dust. That's what it says in Genesis 2-7. In that sense, the contemporary account is true, that we are kind of gunk, we're gunge, we're dust. That's what we're made of, but not just dust. That God took the dust and he breathed his life into us, and somehow he made us to image him, to reflect him, somehow to be like him. And so biblically speaking, to say we're just the product of millions of years of evolution, that we're just kind of mechanical gunge, biblically that's wrong. I think it's also wrong just in terms of a confusion of categories. It's a category mistake to think of ourselves as machines, because we're not. We're not machines. We're organic. We're flesh and blood. We don't have actual building blocks out of which we're constructed. Our brains aren't actually computers. Human beings aren't machines. But the language that we use to describe ourselves is increasingly as if we were. Let me read to you something that the American author, poet, prophet, I think, Wendell Berry, says about this. It may turn out that the most powerful and the most destructive charge of change of modern times has been a change in language. Now, you might not have ever... Are you still tracking with me? Is this okay? Hmm... This, you might never have thought like this. This is really important to try and get your, your mind around. Possibly the most destructive change of modern times has been a change in language. The rise of the image, the metaphor of the machine. Until the Industrial Revolution, most people thought in images that were organic. They had to do with living things. They were biological, pastoral, agricultural, or familial. God was seen as a shepherd, the faithful as a sheep of his pasture. One's home country was known as one's motherland. Certain people were said to have the strength of a lion, the grace of a deer, the speed of a falcon, the cunning of a fox. Jesus spoke of himself as a bridegroom. People who took good care of the earth were said to practice husbandry. The ideal relationships among people were brotherhood, sisterhood. But now we do not flinch to hear men and women referred to as units as if they were as uniform and interchangeable as machine parts. It is common and considered acceptable to refer to the mind as a computer. One's thoughts are inputs, other people's responses are feedback, and the body is thought of as a machine. It is said, for instance, to use food as fuel, and the best workers and athletes are praised by being compared to machines. What has happened is that the technology we have made has changed how we see ourselves. That The Bible tells us that we're created in the image of God, but what we've done is to create technology and then to imagine ourselves as like the technology. We've turned the whole thing 
upside down. Now, why does this matter? Why, as Wendell Berry says, why might this be the most powerful and most destructive change of modern times? I mean, that's a pretty big claim. To confuse categories in this way has such significant implications, such serious consequences for how we understand ourselves as human beings. What it leads to is a kind of dualism where we do separate the body from the mind, from the consciousness, where we do start to think of the body just as hardware and the mind as software. And we start to think as of the mind as the really significant bit, the consciousness, and think of our bodies as somehow less lasting and less important. And we think that way because that's how things are with the technology that we make. So when I get a new phone at some point in the future, the software will transition seamlessly. I've got no idea how it happens. I put in a passcode, put in an email address, and everything appears on my new phone exactly as it was on my old phone. The same music is there, the same podcasts are there, the same contact details are there, the same calendar's there. Everything's just transferred across perfectly. It's amazing, it's a miracle. I don't understand it, it happens. And what happens to the old phone? It's an obsolete carcass. It's a redundant model. It's old. It's of no value anymore. It's not for anything. It's the software that counts, the hardware, just the, the packaging which holds the software in place. And that's increasingly how we in the West tend to think about our bodies, about who we are. Think of this software stuff as the real me and the hardware stuff as somehow plastic and changeable and it's going to be obsolete one day. And that leads to huge confusion about our, our identity. Remember the two biggest questions you can ask. Who are you and what is your purpose? And if what you think you are is essentially somehow a human version of a mobile phone, you're going to think about yourself wrong. You're going to be deceived about yourself. And that's going to have all kinds of practical implications for your health, spiritually, emotionally, physically. So we need a different way of looking at it. We need a different view. The reality is that we're not. We never can be computers. I don't believe that human consciousness can ever be reduced just to bits of information which somehow can be scraped off our brains and uploaded onto the net. And that's because our consciousness can't function except in relation to the body. In human beings, there's no separation between software and hardware. Software and hardware is not the way to think about us. We're an integrated, organic, spiritual whole. Now, you know that because of the way that you experience experiences, the way that you experience emotions. If you're in love with somebody, what is love? It's a question that's often been asked. What is love? You could say, well, it's just something happening in your consciousness. It's a brain function, which then in this consciousness mind thing, which we don't really understand, somehow is going on. And, but you know that's not true, because you know the physical response when you're in love with somebody. It affects you physically. You feel it in your body in all kinds of ways. You know when you eat something, that it's not just a mental What is taste? Well, it's the brain telling you something about this thing you're taking in. It's the brain telling you whether this thing's going to kill you or feed you. You know it's not just that, because... Your body tastes. It's not just your brain. It's not even just your tongue. You take something in which is really tasty, you really enjoy, and your whole body responds to it. You take something in which is disgusting, and your whole body recoils from it.
from it. It's why we use metaphors like, oh, that really took the wind out of my sails. That's not just a sailing metaphor. That's true. If somebody says something to you which you, is really cruel or harsh or hard, it's, you feel it. It takes the wind literally out of you. It's a bodily reaction. There's no consciousness without the body. There's no perception without the body. There's no mind without the body. Our minds don't work like computers. They're not going to be able to scrape our consciousness of our brains and upload it to the internet. That's not how it happens. That's further illustrated by the way our memories work. We don't remember things like computers do. After this morning, when you go home, every one of us, if you were taken into a police station and asked to give a witness statement about what happened this morning, everyone here would give a slightly different story. We'd all give a different account. Why? Because we're organic creatures. We're not machines. It's one of the reasons why God in his mercy has given us the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes people get confused about that. They read them and say, these look different. Well, they are different. They're all telling the same story. They're all telling the same truths, but they're different perspectives because... Everybody who sees something records it and remembers it slightly differently. We don't just take screenshots with our brains. Professor of neuroscience at the University of Southern California, Antonio Damasio, says the mind is embodied in the full sense of the term, not just embrained. It's not that you've got a consciousness which is floating around somewhere in your brain. No, you've got your consciousness is you, you in your body. If you detach the brain from the body, you don't have downloadable software. You don't have anything. Psychologist Robert Epstein puts it like this. We are not born with information, data, rules, software, knowledge, lexicons, representations, algorithms, programs, models, memories, images, processes, subroutines, encoders, decoders, symbols, or buffers, design elements that allow digital computers to behave somewhat intelligently. Not only are we not born with such things, we also don't develop them ever. And that's why Hannah was incapable of drawing a 10-pound note. (laughs) And if I'd asked any one of you in this room to draw a 10-pound note, nobody would have done much better than Hannah did. Now, what is this? It's a 10-pound note. You all recognize it instantly. You all know immediately what it is. We've all seen them. We carry them around in our pockets, in our wallets, in our purses. We know a 10-pound note, but not one of us could accurately draw a 10-pound note. If you asked a computer for an image of a 10-pound note, bang, it'd be perfect. Why? Because computers are not humans. Computers are electronic devices which take snapshots of stuff. We're different. We do things differently. Our Don't worry, Stephen Hawking was wrong. You're never going to get uploaded onto the net. The Christian understanding of human beings is so much better than the contemporary technological one. It's much more true. It's much more satisfying. It's much more hopeful. It's that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created created them. We're made of the dust, yes, but somehow we're made also like God. Who'd settle for being a machine when you could be someone who reflects God? What makes us human? Who are you? What is your purpose? What makes us human is our distinct ability 
to love and commune with God and with other people. We can be in relationship with God. We can be in relationship with each other. Technology can't do that. We experience that even in kind of the mundane things. You send a text message to somebody. You say, send a text message saying, I love you. And you try and make it more personal by adding a load of emojis on the end as well. And it's nice to get texts like that. We all appreciate a text which says, I love you, heart, heart, kiss, kiss, whatever it might be. But you know it's not the same as actually being with somebody you love. You know that when you're with somebody you love, if you're friends, you're men, you shake one another's hands, it's much better than a text message. Or you hug one another. Or you kiss one another. There's an embodiedness which is needed to express love. It is. It's why even in written communication, you know it's much more meaningful if you get a handwritten note than if you get a text message or an email. Why? Because somehow the handwritten note is more embodied. It's got more of the human in it. It's actually been written physically by a human person. It's much more personal. It's much more real. Who are you? And what is your purpose? Those questions are answered when we understand ourselves as bodies made in the image of God. The way to human wholeness isn't by rejecting our bodies. It's not by trying to perfect our bodies, but it's by receiving the bodies that God has given us and recognizing us. Each one of us somehow is made in the image of God to reflect him. We need to embrace who we really are. And the only way you can do that is by embracing who Jesus Christ is. Because Jesus shows us what it is to be fully human. Jesus, who is fully God, but also fully man. He shows us what complete and perfect humanity looks like. Jesus is the bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the head of perfected humanity. Jesus isn't a cyborg. Jesus is a man. There's a man reigning in heaven now who will one day come again to claim for his own those who have put their trust in him. One of my favorite verses in all the scripture is this, 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is what we Christians hope for. This is what we hope in, that Christ is coming again. And we, we don't know exactly what that means, but we know it's going to be amazing, that we shall see him and will be like him. And what we know about Jesus now is that he's not a ghost floating in the sky. He's not a robot. He's not a computer. He's not just a consciousness, a superintelligence. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And he now lives in a body which is a resurrected, glorious body, which can never suffer or get sick or die, but is a human body. And when we shall see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then we'll be perfect. Then we'll be whole. Now, what does this mean practically? I know I'm covering some deep stuff this morning. The next couple of sessions in this series, I want to talk practically. I want to talk very practical stuff. I want to talk about sleep. I want to talk about death. I want to talk about technology and why you should use notepads rather than your phone. This morning, I just want to try and ground it briefly in the area of human sexuality. Because I think this is, in our culture, this is the area where there's the most confusion about what it is to be a human being. 
because of our wrong understandings of what human beings are. If what we are, if, the, if all we are as human beings, if our bodies just are kind of mechanical gunk which has evolved over the millions of years, well, then it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You can do whatever you like with it because it's, it's going to become obsolete one day anyway. It doesn't really count. If, if what really counts is your consciousness, your mind, if that's the real you, then all your body is is just a canvas for self-expression. The body just is meant to display what the real you wants it to display. And because that's how increasingly we tend to think in our world, that means that we think about our sexuality just as a matter of what I decide, autonomously, personally, rather than seeing it as something which is about who we fundamentally are as human beings and what it means to be a community of people, what it is to be a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And Christianity offers a very different vision of our sexuality, something which is much more true, something which is much more beautiful. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What our sexuality does is to reflect God in his creative genius. That God's wove complementarity throughout the universe. God made the day and the night. God made the sun and the moon. God made the rocks and the sea. God made the heavens and the earth. And God made the man and the woman. And these things all reflect a spiritual reality in their physical reality. We also know from the gospel what our sexuality is meant to reflect. The Bible talks about Christ and his church and God as the lover and us, his people, as his beloved and him as the groom, the husband and we as his bride, his wife. And all these images that the Bible uses, these complementarity, complementary images and all these complementary things in creation, they all speak of solidity and permanence. And if we have our eyes open to see, what they tell us is that our bodies matter. Our bodies aren't just the consequence of millions of years of evolving gunk, and our bodies aren't just like phones which have become obsolete and tossed out at some point. Actually, our bodies are given to us so that we might tell the story of what is true and beautiful. Because our bodies were created to image God. Why is it that we find weddings emotional? Weddings are emotional. The women always cry at weddings, so do lots of the men, to be honest, I normally cry at weddings. When I'm taking a wedding, I always really struggle that last bit, the declaration after the vows have been given and the minister in charge pronounces a kind of a blessing and says, because these things have been said, because rings have been exchanged, because promises have been made, I declare you to be husband and wife. I always struggle to get the words out at that point. There's always an emotional kind of catch. Why is that? Why are weddings so emotional? You might say, well, it's simply because you care about the people involved, and that's true, but actually there's something more profound that's going on. It's because what weddings do is they point for all of us, whether you're married or whether you're single, they point for all of us about how human beings were made to reflect God and are intended for a, an eternal relationship with him. We're made 
for friendship, for love, for communion with God and with one another. And you see that at a wedding. As a couple do that, as they say, we're going to be in love, we're going to commune together, we're going to be in friendship, we're going to be in relationship. And that's why weddings are emotional, because it points to a bigger reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if you get hold of that, if you can understand what it is to be a human, if you can understand the preciousness of your body, if you can understand that your body was made by God, given to you for you to tell a story of what is true and beautiful, why would you do anything? You wouldn't want to do anything with your body which fails to demonstrate that truth. You wouldn't want to do anything which makes a lie of the story for which you have been created, the story that we're meant to tell. Who are you? What is your purpose? You are a human, a man or a woman made in the image of God. You were made to reflect God in the body that he gave you. Just to help us see this with more clarity than I think I can articulate, we're going to watch a three-minute video by my friend Andrew Wilson about what a wedding represents. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white, and spotless. She gets presented to him and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one, and all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake 
all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. God says we are righteous in his sight. We walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have made us to be. Thank you that in you we find the answers to these two great questions. Who are you and what is your purpose? Thank you that we can answer them, that we are people made in the image of God and our purpose is to reflect you and tell the story of who you are through who you've made us. I pray you'd help us to understand and grasp these things. Lord, I pray as we come now as we worship you again, I pray as we come and take the bread and the wine, this symbol of our union with you, that we might grasp in our, in our entirety, Lord, body and soul, what it is to be made human beings, what it is to be made man and woman, what it is to be made as those who are called to know you and reflect you and enjoy you forever. We have this hope that we shall be like you, Jesus, for we shall see you as you are. Lord, I pray that we'd get these things, and Lord, in the challenges of our world, with a very different view that uh, is common in our culture, with all the challenges that come to us, with changes in technology and ways of doing life, I pray that we'd hold fast to what is true and that we would tell the story what is true. I pray that we wouldn't be deceived but we'll be those who know who we are, know who you are, and tell the truth about that to a world that needs to hear it. Amen. Amen.